Sunday's getting better and better and better. It was already pretty awesome. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. We put up more chairs this morning, didn't we? And we needed them. Three weeks from today. What's three weeks from today? Resurrection Sunday. Easter Sunday. Just three weeks from today. Uh, How many chairs are we going to need? All of them. I like that. All of them. All of them. Wouldn't it be cool if our worship team couldn't come down off the platform because there wasn't any place for them to go? Could sit up, could sit up here all Sunday feeling all self-conscious. Every eye is on me. Now you know how I feel. Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, Part Three, Part Three of Three. Uh, uh, if if you haven't if you've missed a Sunday, you can always catch up. Uh, these these services are recorded. They're uh, they're recorded. Uh, they're live on Facebook, and then you can still go back and see them on Facebook later today or or tomorrow probably. Uh, there'll be um, uh, a refined, enhanced post production quality uh, recording of today's worship and and message on our YouTube channel. And Bob Nywending just told me this morning he's caught up on our podcast. Anybody out there listen to podcasts? There's a few of us. Well, you got to get with the times because podcasting, my friend, podcasting is the way. I listen to them on my iPod. <laughs> See what I did there? All right, enough, enough foolishness. Let's get going. Uh, I know Mike just prayed. Would, would you pray with me? Lord, I ask for your help right now. I ask that as we uh, finish this brief mini-series within the greater series on the Sermon on the Mount, remembering that you said all of this all at one time, and uh, 2,000 years later, we're still trying to get our arms around it, trying to get our hearts around it, trying to let it form us. So we've been taking it, as, as Mike mentioned this morning, taking it in small bites. But these bites are big bites out of us. And I pray, Father, that you'll continue to bite out of me everything that doesn't please you. And, uh, and that you will, by the Spirit of God in me, prevent it from creeping back in. Because that's really the challenge that we're faced with on Mondays. Help us now in these moments to give our attention to you and to your word. To hear what it is that the Spirit may have to say to each one of us this morning. Help me to say what you want me to say. And if I've said something I shouldn't have said, help these people to miss it or forget it quickly. And if I miss saying something that I should have said, I know by your Holy Spirit you can add it into the minds and the hearts of those who were supposed to hear it from my mouth. I ask for your help. We all do, in Jesus' name, amen. This 
This Sermon on the Mount begins, and we've reminded ourselves of this each of the last Sundays. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's how far we've come. We continue this morning with the last of the statements of blessing with which Jesus really gives the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The next statement of blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, Some time ago in my life as a young boy, I'm guessing around 10 years old. I don't, I don't remember exactly how, how old I was at the time. I was probably in the neighborhood of 10 years old. I had, I had been in church now for 10 years, and I had heard the Beatitudes, probably had already begun to memorize them uh, for prizes, because that's how we motivate children to do things. Uh, I remember having a pencil that, that had um, printed on the side of the pencil the golden rule. We're, we're coming to the golden rule. It's several weeks down the road, but it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. So I had begun, I had begun um, memorizing the Beatitudes, and there, there was a day that I had, I had been talking with my mom about this particular statement, blessed are the peacemakers. And I asked her, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And, and she began to tell me, that she was seeing this character trait in me. I was the youngest of four sons, and we had at that time uh, a younger sister. Now, now, now I have two younger sisters, but that, at that time there was one younger sister, Debbie, who you met a few months ago, uh, four years younger than me. So if I was 10, she would have been six. And I, and I was trying to uh, mediate conflicts among my siblings. I, I was trying to solve problems and smooth things over. I didn't like the conflict. It made me anxious. And so I would go to my older brothers and and I would say, stop picking on Debbie. And and I would go to my younger sister and say, stop letting your brothers pick on you. (laughs) Things things like that. And and, uh, my mom in this conversation said to me, you know, Dennis, she didn't call me Dennis then, but what she called me, my nickname is is odious to me, so I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> see, see. Sticks and stones may break my... But names will crush me forever. My mother said to me, you have a gift of being a peacemaker. And she explained to me what she saw in me that made her say that. And I was paying close attention to her because I felt like this was praise. And what child doesn't want to receive praise from the parent? And I took her words seriously and I felt deputized. <laughs> and, and so I, 
began to see myself more formally in this role as a peacemaker until that evening when I tried to intervene in a loud and, and passionate conversation between my mother and my father. And they caused me to understand that I was out of my jurisdiction. Still, she planted a seed in my thoughts, in my ideas about myself, and some, and some things that I wanted to see growing in myself. Parents have the ability to speak into the lives of their children, to prophesy over their children. Kelly, uh, a few weeks ago, heard a song that she can't let go of. I speak Jesus. I speak Jesus over, over this circumstance. I speak Jesus over this person. We were with our oldest son and his wife and our three oldest grandsons over the last couple of days. And, and uh, we, were, we were giving thanks for our, for our meal, one of our meals. And one of our grandkids said, I, I want to pray. And I looked at Kelly and she looked at me and I said, you know, we're speaking Jesus over these children. You want to be careful what you speak over your children. Because it's possible that when you speak words that, that your children hear and they reach into their minds and into their hearts to give them ideas about who they could become. Sometimes your prophecies for over your children, God will make them come true. So be careful, parents. What you say to your children, you're worthless, you're no good, you're never going to amount to anything. You don't want that prophecy to be fulfilled, right? We want to be careful how we speak over our children. Proceed with caution. Because sometimes... What you say to your children will become a prophecy fulfilled. Colossians 1 verse 19 uh, gives us this information. For God was pleased to have all his God's fullness dwell in him, Christ, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself, God the Father, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus, of course, is our example. As, as in every quality that we, that, we, that we hold forth as a godly characteristic, Jesus is the example set before us to aspire to follow. Jesus is a peacemaker. He has made peace between God, who has a grievance against me, and me, who has no excuse or apology. But Jesus is the mediator between a holy God and a sinful world. Amen. And he makes peace. I can't do that. I can't make peace happen between God and people. I don't have to. Jesus has done that part. I just need to proclaim it. 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He begins in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love is the thing that stirs me and spurs me and pushes me and pulls me and gets me out of my comfortable place of saying nothing to anybody. That's my preference. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, Jesus died for all. How many? All. All. All? Even fill in the blank. Therefore, all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Let me say that again. Those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. He continues, Paul does. So from now on, we know we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we, Paul, Paul and the rest of us, regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Here's this wonderful memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. I bet a lot of you have committed this verse to memory. Maybe not in this English Standard Version translation, but in some, many of us in the room started out memorizing this in the King James, and then we've, we've since become confused by some of the other versions, and I, and I get them mixed up when I try to recite it from memory. But you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Keep this in mind. From, from this point on now, as we talk, we're talking from the point of view of those who have, who have become new in Christ. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And notice this, especially, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He, God, has given to us, me and you, the ministry, the service of reconciliation. He has assigned us this task. We are to proclaim the message of reconciliation. Here's the message, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. Amen. Thank, thankfully. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message that makes us messengers. Right? God has given me a message. Is it for me? Yes. But not just for me. You put a letter in the mail to thank grandma for her birthday card that had the $5 bill in it. And you put it in the mailbox. And the postman or woman, postal carrier, comes by and picks it up and puts it in their Jeep. 
And you expect then what? That card with your carefully written thank you to grandma will be delivered to grandma in two or three days. Right? Because the postal carrier is your messenger carrying your message. So if God has appointed to me a message, he expects it to be delivered to the intended recipient, right? And I also want, I want to point this out. God chooses to see people through the blood of Christ. Those who are in Christ, who are a new creation. He chooses to no longer notice all of the ugly things about me. Instead, he sees me with a coat of crimson paint. Now, I know that's a crass illustration. All right. I've been repainted. I'm not who I was. And God chooses to no longer remind himself or me of who I used to be. If there's a voice in your head reminding you of who you used to be, that's not God. He does not see you that way. He does not count men's sins against them when they are in Christ. Now, I've talked to a lot of people, both, both here in our congregation and, and in many other places. And I have heard person after person after person describe being reminded of their unworthiness and who they used to be. That is not a tool in God's toolbox. That strategy belongs to the adversary. And he's masterful with it. He knows how to make you feel unworthy. He knows how to make you say, I need to go sit back down on the bench. Take me out of the game, coach. I'm hurt. I can't continue. Because there's a voice in my head that I keep listening to that says to me, remember what you used to do? Do you really think that God cares at all about you? Do you really think, do you really think that God has forgiven you of that ugly thing you did and still do? Do you really think that God is not going to bring that up and accuse you with it? Yes, I really think that. Yes, accuser, I really believe what God has said. I am in Christ. I'm a new creation. God does not count my sins against me anymore. I have been delivered. I've been set free. I've been forgiven. We need to learn not to count men's sins against them either. Especially, we need to learn not to count people's sins against them who we know are also in Christ, 
whose sins have been forgiven by God. And when we choose to keep remembering them and keep talking about them, whose coach are we listening to? Whose team are we playing for? Whose work are we doing? When we speak to others about what so-and-so did or is still doing, we are counting their sins against them when God has said, I'm not. Stop counting. I know that's really hard for numbers people like me. Stop counting. (laughs) This passage goes on. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though, listen to this, as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. And he is. We implore you on Christ's behalf. This is our appeal to the world. Be reconciled to God. He doesn't want to smoke you in judgment. He wants to cover you with the blood of Christ so that you can be forgiven. And return to the God who made you and who loves you. We are Christ's ambassadors. Two weeks ago in our small group, uh, we're sitting, we're talking about uh, what we're talking about. And I so wanted to point out at that point this verse, because I love this verse. I love this idea. I I think about it all the time. And I was just waiting for a chance, uh, a, a lull in the conversation so I could jump in. But before I could, somebody else did with this very verse. And I said, okay, good enough. <laughs> we, are, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We're strangers and aliens here. That's comforting to some of us. Because we have felt strange. In our, in our culture where we feel like we don't really fit. Yes, we don't. You're not supposed to fit in this culture of, of worldliness that has no place for God in it. We don't fit here. We're strange. We're alien. We're supposed to be even stranger and more alien. I just gave some of you permission for weirdness. <laughs> be careful now. Listen for the Spirit of God, not just me. We represent Christ to the world. Now, I've given this a lot of thought because I've had all week to get this ready. An ambassador recognizes that his or her loyalty is not to the host nation where they are assigned. Now, we, we have respect for, we are diplomatic with our host nation. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright passed away this last week. That's why the flags are at half-mast, in case you were wondering who died. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who uh, was our chief during, during her years as Secretary of State. She was the chief ambassador of the United States to every country in the world. Ambassadors recognize his or her loyalty is not to the host nation 
but to the, to the one who has appointed them ambassador. It doesn't matter to the ambassador who is the current head of state. Whether the current head of state in the country to which they have been posted is a wicked person or a righteous person. It doesn't matter to the ambassador. The job can be easier or harder. But it doesn't matter to the ambassador. The ambassador is not chiefly concerned with what's going on in the nation to which they have been appointed. The ambassador is a representative of the one who appointed them to that nation. Most of you know that I served in the army You've, you've heard me talk about being stationed uh, in Berlin. Back then it was still West Berlin. And uh, when we traveled across the, the wall, the Berlin Wall, through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, the first time we were taken into East Berlin, uh, the first thing the NCO, the non-commissioned officer in charge, showed us was he showed us how to find the United States Embassy in East Berlin. You go down this street, you turn a corner, and there's a huge American flag flying in East Berlin. That's the embassy. And they told us, if you find yourself in any trouble, or if you get lost, find your way, get in a taxi, and tell them to take you to the embassy of the United States of America. Get to the embassy. Because when you are in the embassy, you are on American soil, and you are safe. At least from the rest of the world. We are Christ's ambassadors. When you find yourself in trouble in this world. Get yourself back to the feet of Jesus. Where you are safe. The world needs peacemakers today. The United States needs peacemakers today. The church of Jesus Christ needs peacemakers today. You and I, we need to be peacemakers starting right now. Next of Jesus' statements. This is one Probably the least favorite of all of these blessing statements. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of <laughs> This is rarely mentioned, in, rarely mentioned in evangelistic messages. This is not a popular evangelist text. This is not the way to sell vacuum cleaners. This vacuum cleaner, if you buy it, will occasionally electrocute you. <laughs> Chances are, you'll die with a clean floor. How many of us, if we knew what it meant to be a disciple, that we were going to be persecuted, we would have volunteered to follow Jesus? That's not a selling point. I want you to notice, Jesus qualified his statement about persecution. It's not just everyone who is persecuted. It is those who are persecuted for being righteous, for doing the right thing. 
you are persecuted. There are a lot of reasons why I could be persecuted for being a jerk, for cutting somebody off on the, on the throughway or in the driveway or, or for blowing my leaves onto my neighbor's yard. I'm not saying I do that. I don't blow the leaves. That's an act of God. Okay. God causes the wind to blow. That's... It's when, it's when I am persecuted for following Jesus that this blessing kicks in. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are reasons that, might, that you and I might be disliked that have nothing whatsoever to do with how we're following Christ. But when I am persecuted because I'm trying to be an obedient and faithful servant, Jesus said, okay, you're blessed for that. Listen to what Peter has to say on the topic. Uh, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. If we're trying to follow Jesus faithfully and someone causes me to suffer as a result of me doing the, the thing that I'm certain Jesus wants me to do, when I am certain Jesus wants me to do it and I do it and someone doesn't like that I did it and they make it obvious to me in some way that they didn't like that, something they say or something they do. Uh, I'm, I am expecting that God will bless me, and that's better than any bad thing that anybody else can do to me. God's best is far better than everybody else's worst. Peter goes on to say this, and and this is a verse, you've heard me say this before, and and if you hang around me for any length of time, you're going to hear me say it again. This is one of these verses that God has really been speaking into my life with, especially in the last decade of my life. Peter says, uh, in the context of suffering for doing what is right, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. In your heart, Make sure you're doing what God wants you to do. Make sure Christ is really the Lord who is directing your actions and thoughts and attitudes and words. And then always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. Preparation means you've studied. You know what you think. You know what you believe. And you know why you believe what you believe. You are prepared to talk about your faith. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Here's where, here's where we get it sometimes twisted. Sometimes we are trying to aggressively answer questions nobody is asking. And when you answer questions nobody's asking, nobody cares. So, one one of the things that God has been working in my life with this verse is, Dennis, live your life in such a way that you will be asked that question. What's different about you? Why are you calm and peaceful when everything around you is crazy? How do you have, how do you have the ability 
to not react to that provocation? That's the question I'm ready to answer. But nobody's going to ask me that question if I don't give them a reason to ask me that question. If I act like everybody else acts, they're never going to ask me why I'm ask, acting the way I'm asking. Act. They're never going to ask me. This is difficult. I should have rehearsed this. <laughs> they're never going to ask me why I'm acting the way I'm acting if I'm acting the way they expect me to act. If I act the way they act, if I act the way everybody else acts, nobody's going to ask me why I'm acting that way. What provokes the question is when you can show them a different way. A different way. A way that is in some sense attractive and appealing. And provokes curiosity. That's what I want to do. I want to provoke curiosity. Not the kind of curiosity that says, what in the world is wrong with that nut? Where did he get his driver's license? No, I want to provoke the kind of curiosity that somebody says, how is he able to do that in the face of this? Live in such a way that people will ask you to give an explanation for the hope that you have. And then, and then Peter says this, and this has, this has barb in it. This is a barbed hook. It goes in, but you can't pull it out without causing pain or damage. Do this with gentleness and respect. I want everybody to repeat those words with me. Do this with gentleness and respect. Now say that to yourself a hundred thousand times until it sinks in. Do I, do I talk to people who disagree with me in a way that shows gentleness and respect. Because if I argue, I'm building a wall. But if I can speak with gentleness and respect, there's a good chance that the Spirit of God will use what I say and overcome the wall that they have built. And the wall that they have built is not between them and me. Because I'm just the messenger. I'm the postal carrier delivering the message. Right? This, this last part of this passage in 1 Peter 3. By being gentle and respectful, you keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If I do what is right, and I'm criticized for it, or persecuted because, it, because of it, that says something about that person more than it says something about me, right? And God, and God will use that as a, an avenue to reach them through their own conscience. Because the conscience is where the Spirit of God grabs a hold of me. Is that true for you? My conscience is a, is a ready handle for God's Spirit to grab a hold of. My mother, who I already mentioned in this message, so I'm going to mention her again. My mother had this thing that she used to say to people who were nasty to her, who said something mean to her, 
or, or called her a, an unkind name. She would say this with a smile on her face. I've been called worse things by nicer people. <laughs> Here's Peter's summary. Here's Peter's summary statement in this passage. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If I am going to suffer, let it be because I have done the thing that God has clearly told me he wants me to do. Not because I have been disrespectful or rude or proud or self-first. There's another witness that I want to call to the stand who saw plenty of persecution during his lifetime once he started to follow Jesus. That's the Apostle Paul. This is what he said. He said this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, raise your hand if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Yes, now you're going to put your hand down quickly when you hear this next part. <laughs> everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yeesh. We don't, tell, we don't tell you this in your baptism class. <laughs> we should expect the world and those people who are still caught up in those chains of bondage. We're singing songs almost every Sunday. This, this idea comes into the lyrics of the songs that we sing here in worship uh, about Jesus breaking us free from chains that have held us in bondage. These chains of bondage that look, they look like they're made of dandelions. The world wants you to think they're made of dandelions and lilies and nice, attractive, fragrant things. But they're chains that hold us enslaved in our own sin-darkened condition. That's what the world sees and because they're still held in bondage, they look at us and they hate us. They despise us. They mock us. They seek to take advantage of us. They ridicule us. They try to discredit our faith. And they look with suspicion even on our efforts to do what God wants us to do. That's how the world looks at us sometimes. I'm not trying to make us into some you know, big group of martyrs here. Everybody's against us. That's not, that's not my intention at all. I'm just simply saying, if, if you want to follow Jesus, people who don't know Jesus the way we know Jesus, they're not going to like us. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And everybody in the room would say amen to that. This is, what, uh, this is what Jesus said to conclude this introductory passage of his famous Sermon on the Mount. The, the ninth statement of blessing. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This, this almost seems like it's a, con- a continuation of the previous statement. Blessed are, are those who are persecuted. He, he, remember I mentioned about Hebrew poetry and parallelism and parallel statements that are different ways of saying the same thing. And some of them, some of them say one thing and then they say the opposite. They're still parallel. And then sometimes, sometimes the poet will say this and then they will say this to extend the idea, to enhance it, to enlarge it. And I think that that's the case here. As Jesus wraps up this introduction to his message, he has made eight, eight parallel statements. He comes to the eighth statement and then, he, and then he adds to it with the ninth to take it another step. To revile is to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. We've seen plenty of examples of reviling statements. Nowadays, it looks to me like every political campaign is reduced to a statement of reviling statements. A series of reviling statements. To persecute is to subject someone to hostility and ill treatment especially because of their political or religious beliefs. And Jesus said, And when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, they speak and they spread accusations and lies and other angry words about you. Note again the qualifier, Jesus adds, On my account. When people do these things to you on my account because of me. We interrupt this verse to remind us of something else that Jesus said to his disciples. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world hates me, The world hates Jesus? That doesn't seem right. It's hard to say anything bad against Jesus. What did he ever do? What did he ever do wrong? Well, people had no problem saying false things about him and accusing him of things that led to his sentencing to death, right? What's what's behind that? What what's what's the motive behind falsely accusing someone to get them executed? To get them cruelly, cruelly destroyed. With a few exceptions, the world did and still does hate Jesus. What he stands for. And that's because this world that you and I are live, we're born into it, we're living in it, we're, we're doing business in this world. This world... And everything in it, John says, the world and everything in it is passing away. It's been led astray by the... De- de- <clears throat> I should have practiced. Maybe my, maybe my mouth is dry. That's, don't worry, I don't need any water. I'm fine. <laughs> the world has been led astray by the devil, the deceiver, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. He's got most of the world believing... That Jesus is a myth 
and that Christians are at best deceived. But who is it that's deceived? The one who rejects Jesus Christ and the only way out of this sinful world system. The only way out is through Jesus Christ. Okay, resuming the uh, earlier verse. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, if you're being persecuted, if you're being uh, mocked, if you're being accused of horrible things that everybody who knows you know, that's not true. But if they're doing this to you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Huh. Okay. Your reward is great in heaven. And oh, by the way, you're in good company. Listen to this. In the first days, the first days and weeks after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after the disciples saw him carried up into heaven with a promise to return... And, and another promise to, to send the Holy Spirit to give them power to be his witnesses. After all of this, that had such an impact on them that Peter and John and the other disciples we now call apostles suddenly got lit on fire by the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire. I mean, he even says that language in Acts chapter. They got excited about being ambassadors for Christ and they started preaching the message of reconciliation. And some of the people that they were preaching to were the very same people who had condemned Jesus to death. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has appointed to be both Lord and Christ. And by the way, raised him from the dead to show that he has the authority to do that. So this power transformed these Timid men, fishermen, unskilled, uneducated, unlearned men who had never said anything more than thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That was the extent of their theological foundation. That was enough, by the way. <clears throat> they began to minister and the Jewish authorities who had, who had been responsible for Jesus' death now started to persecute and, and try to take these guys out too. And uh, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, we get the disciples' reaction. They left the presence of the council, the Jewish council, the Jewish ruling council, that told them sternly, stop talking about Jesus. They said, well, you know, we'll obey God rather than men. And when they left, they were rejoicing. Listen to this. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. For the name. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can we find a way to adopt this attitude when we're subjected to persecution because of our faith in Jesus? Can I can I make an observation here? It's probably not going to be popular. But in the last, I don't know, dozen or so years, um, living as a Christian in our country, things aren't going our way. Things aren't going the Christian's way in America these days. Would you agree? 
There are lots of, not, I mean, it's not, it's not all bad, but there are lots of, we've lost a lot of battles. I won't, I won't go down the list, but you, you do, you, you think about them. And um, we're getting kind of frustrated because we're not getting our way. Think about that. We're frustrated because things aren't going the way we want them to go. Let me ask you something. Doesn't that make us sound like petulant children? We're frustrated because we aren't getting our own way. And other people are getting their way. And we're mad. I'm rejoicing that I am counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Now around here, around here at, uh, at Harmony Baptist Church, Harmony Ministries, we've been talking a lot lately about some really cool things that are going on, right? I mean, we're happy. There's good things. There's good energy. Um, that we, we see the hand of God. We, we see God's spirit touching down here and there and there and there. And we're talking about moments where we can see God's blessing pouring out, God's light shining through. It's cool. We're exci- I'm excited to be here. I've heard a few of you say you are. Maybe you're not sure right now because of what I just said. But <laughs> Don't persecute me, okay? <laughs> We're noticing God is doing exciting things here. We're not the only ones noticing. Guess who else is noticing? We have an adversary. We have an adversary who is not going to sit on his hands while God wins victory after victory after victory around here. He's not going to throw in the towel and give up and slink away. He's not leaving without a fight. He will leave because God's Spirit will send him away like he did when he tempted Jesus uh, unsuccessfully. And the scripture says he left for a time. But he, got, he came back and he's going to keep coming back. Until he can't come back anymore. So, we're going to be targets for opposition. We're going to be target, targets for persecution. People are going to revile us. And persecute us. And, and utter all kinds of things against us falsely. Because of the name of Jesus Christ for his sake. But can we rejoice together that God has chosen us for his purpose and recognize that when we are persecuted for doing what is right, that is an evidence of God's blessing on us. We have been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Here's Paul again in Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you. It has been granted to you. It's a gift. This is one I'd rather leave unopened. <laughs> it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer. That's a gift. <laughs> to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We're engaged in the same conflict that Paul had. 
and Peter had, and James, and John, and all of the famous Bible people. That power that gave them the ability to overcome, the resurrection power that broke the back of Satan. Satan could not keep him in the grave. He could not keep Paul from proclaiming the gospel. He could not keep Peter from proclaiming the gospel. He could not keep James or John. And he doesn't have any more power now than he had then. And the same power that's, that caused Paul to stand, the same power that opened Peter's mouth, the same power that closed the lion's mouths and the den of lions with Daniel, that same power is still at work in you and I today. It's not running out. Hebrews chapter 11 gives this list of of heroes of faith. Pastor John mentioned this as he was nearing the end of his last long series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus compares people who are persecuted for his sake to the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament that God sent to his people because he loved his people and he sent to them messengers. He sent to them ambassadors. And the people that he sent them to did not welcome those servants of God. In many cases persecuted God's servants, the prophets, some of them to the point of death. And Jesus said, I am counting you in the number of those select servants of God who have been given a message of reconciliation. And whether the world accepts you or whether they don't accept you, I'm the one who decides whether you have been faithful. I'm the one who judges your work, not the world. That that statement in Hebrews chapter 11 ends this way. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Something better Something better is prepared for us. Something better than anything that we could get from this world is waiting for us. A reward for faithfulness that far exceeds the cost on this earth. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul, who who crawled out from under a pile of stones that had been covering him because they had taken him out of the city and stoned him and they left him buried under a pile of stones thinking him dead. Maybe in my imagination, hours later, you start to see one of those rocks roll off the pile. That's how they would have filmed it if they were doing it Hollywood style, right? And then a hand. And then, and maybe, maybe some other people came out and they helped move the stones away to find if Paul was there, they would give him a decent burial. And they found, he's got a pulse. He called that a light 
momentary affliction. When compared with the weight of eternal glory that God is getting ready to show us. Here they are then one more time and in order. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is the pattern we're given to order our lives in this way. And Jesus says to you and to me, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. The worship team is getting ready to close the service with a song. Uh, I want to close this message and this mini series with the words from a hymn we used to sing in church once in a while, not the same song they're going to lead us in. I'm not going to sing it. This is the words. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I left out a line. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. One look at his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Father, help us to order our lives according to this pattern. Not to be ashamed or afraid of what men and this world might do to us. Rather, to seek to serve you faithfully and fully in every way we can. Using these statements of blessing as our pattern. In Jesus' name. Sing how great is our God.
great thou art. God, we don't have the words to truly describe your greatness. So God, accept what we give. We ask God that you would just take our offerings. We love you and we want to give you praise and glory and honor. Not because of what you did although that's amazing, but simply because you're God. That's all the reason we ever need. But God, thank you so much for all the other things that you've done. For the gift of salvation, for your son that you sent here. For us who are so not worthy of it. As we go this week, God, help us to be representatives of you. People look at us and they need to see you. So help us to respond with gentleness and with love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done already this morning and what you're doing in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.